Welcome to CityWare Selectors Podcast and joining me today is Deborah Gilshin, founder of 100% Club and Nishalon, head of ESG and cross-border research at CityWire. Deborah, Nisha, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks, Margarita. Thanks for having me. Thanks to CityWire as well. Always a pleasure. Um, and as we are speaking today uh, is actually... Uh, the publication of the FTSE Women Leadership Report. And I think there are a lot of interesting things in there, but well, for starters, Dabra, could, could you give me an overview of what that report actually stands for and how it developed, but also about what are the most interesting findings that you would like to highlight? Sure. Thank, thanks, Margarita. So, um, the day of our podcast, as Margarita says, the FTSE Women Leaders report has been um, issued. Uh, FTSE Women Leaders is now the new name for what was the Hampton Alexander Review, which was the second second UK government-backed review into women on boards and women in senior leadership teams. And Hampton Alexander set a target for FTSE 350 companies uh, that they meet a target of one third, so 33% of boards um, and senior leadership teams would be uh, female uh, by the end of 2020. Um, And so this report um, is the next iteration of the review and analyzes some of the key data points as to where companies in the FTSE uh, 350 have have got to, uh, and I guess where they need to go to. Uh, New targets have been set, so 40%, Um, women on boards and leadership teams by 2025, uh, minimum 40%. um, And also that for FTSE 350, by the end of 2025, at least one woman in the chair or senior independent director role um, and or one woman in the CEO or finance director role. So I think what you're seeing is targets now being set about the types of roles that women um, are being given on boards. Um, And obviously there is still quite a dearth of female talent um, at CEO level, finance director level. So hopefully some of these, um, again, voluntary-based targets, you know, using multi-stakeholder approaches, so the role of investors is key here, uh, will hopefully achieve that. And they're also extending the scope uh, of these targets to include the 50 largest private companies um, in the UK by sales, because obviously diversity applies to any organisation, really regardless of where it's um, listed and, it, and its ownership structure. Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting. And what I was wondering, you've mentioned kind of what is the investor role in all of this. And um, I was wondering exactly that. So how, where do investment companies come in and how can they aid that process? So be it with their votes or maybe engagement. What, what is your take on this? Yeah. So at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I believe that investor power, power of investor capital is so transformational in this regard Um, This is about addressing systemic inequalities in the system um, of which gender inequality is one. And and obviously we're talking about gender inequalities and gender um, balances today through the the report. But but obviously, as we know, diversity 
you know, encapsulate so much more uh, about underrepresentation in society and companies. But the role of investors um, is absolutely key, uh, both in terms of their portfolio construction, so the companies that they select and how they integrate diversity, equity, inclusion into their investment processes. And certainly the, the investors that I work with and I advise are, are keen to understand that, as well as how they integrate diversity, equity and inclusion considerations into their stewardship strategies. So how they engage with their portfolio companies, how they vote annual general meetings, um, how they escalate their stewardship strategies to get the best outcome for their end clients, including including through investor collaborations. Um, you know, the 30% Club now has seven investor groups around the world, started in the UK, uh, but they now um, have proliferated Brazil, France, Poland, um, Japan, um, Canada and Australia. So I think that is really an indication of kind of the, the the power and the force of collective investor voice as well. Um, in the report that was launched today, Michelle Scrimger from Legal and General Investment Management is quoted as saying, you know, the power of investor action and voting cannot be overestimated. Um, overestimated here so um, and obviously legal and general investment management won the fun um the judges choice award in our first uh gender diversity uh, citywide award so um i think just that sentiment of the power of investors is is really key mm-hmm. well i was wondering deborah because obviously it's not the first year you're focusing on stewardship of course are you noticing any shift in Turns in how asset managers are voting on specifically diversity and gender issues. Because I personally, from my side, uh, I'm noticing increasingly more how they're at least outwardly manifesting, okay, we're filing resolutions. We had a dedicated question in the questionnaire last year as well about that. There were some very interesting answers. So do you see any kind of like developments in that regard? Yeah, so it, it is interesting because Asset managers tend not to propose shareholder resolutions, although you know there are calls for asset managers to do more in that regard because it's a key shareholder right to propose a shareholder resolution. So the focus has been on how they vote on shareholder proposals related to a wide variety of environmental, social and, and governance issues, including on diversity. Um, and what's interesting is data from Share Action from their 2021, December 2021 report, they looked at uh, voting by 65 of the world's largest asset managers across 146 social and environmental resolutions um, voted on in 2021. And what they found of the 89 social resolutions, if you put diversity into the, I guess, the social category, So there was 13 resolutions or 15% that received majority support from asset managers. And all of these resolutions called for disclosure of diversity data. Um, And as well, that disclosure-related resolutions and diversity received significantly more support than other social resolutions. So I think that's really interesting and coincides and chimes with a lot of the calls from investors for more data. I mean, investors love data, right? They want to integrate this into portfolio construction um, as well as as how they they vote and engage. So um, I think that's 
really encouraging. Um, and interestingly, data from the Sustainable Investments Institute tells us that there's been a 23% increase, so 100 extra resolutions this year on environmental, social and governance issues. And I asked them for a bit more data on the diversity resolutions and they are seeing a year-on-year increase on uh, in diversity the number of shield proposals on diversity across board diversity fair pay racial justice equal opportunities data um, as an employment data as well so I think again those two data points are really interesting because you're seeing more shareholder proposals although as I said asset managers tend not to be the proponents but you're also seeing increases in the, the level of support for these resolutions as well. And more and more investors are publicly disclosing, you know, sometimes in advance of how, of how they're going to vote, but also after they've voted, they explain, you know, in public documents why they've taken the decision to support or vote against any type of resolution. So I think all of this is hopefully moving in, in the right direction. Uh, but I would say stewardship is not just voting and engagement. It is about collaborations, it is about escalation when you don't get, you know, the results that you're hoping for um, as, a, as an owner and as a steward of capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, one interesting thing that you've mentioned here is that asset managers don't turn to table those resolutions um, and they're coming from elsewhere. So what, what do you think is the holdup? Where do we have the bottleneck here? Because it seems like these should be the people in the companies that should be at the for- forefront of this movement. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. Um, I, I've filed quite a few resolutions when I worked within institutional investment. Um, and I think Asset managers have tended to rely on the the size of their holdings as well as, you know, voting and private engagement. And they started to collaborate a lot more as well. But I think that, you know, the analysis of voting records um, sometimes indicates that, you know, perhaps impactful voting could be more, sorry, voting could be more impactful. Um, And I think really the NC for an investor is looking for much more use of all of the rights available to to shareholders, including the right to file a resolution. So I think we need to switch it to be about the use of shareholder rights rather than perhaps sometimes it being seen as an antagonistic act against an investing company. I think stewardship and ownership is about having difficult conversation conversation and using all of the rights that are available to you. And actually, uh, a really significant report from the end of 2020 from the um, HM Treasury Asset Management Task Force set out 20 principles of how to put stewardship at the heart of sustainable capital markets. And one of the areas they identified was the use of shareholder proposals and the filing of shareholder proposals. Um, And I know that the International Corporate Governance Network has done a viewpoint on this area of um, perhaps just understanding more about what that looks like. And hopefully more shareholders will begin to use that that right. It's tended to be asset owners um, and other um, and, and some advocacy groups that have used that tool. Um, But I'm hopeful that you begin to see that as more of a routine stewardship strategy. Mm, And that it's not just punitive, but you can use it as another lever to pull and you can do engagement in parallel with kind of like filing those resolutions and it's not cancelling each other out, basically. I guess that's the thinking we need to adopt. Yeah, that's exactly it. 
um, Margarita, that it isn't punitive, that it's just a, a part of a process um, and that it's often escalation. It's often issues that you've tried to engage you know, privately. And, and what I found is suretyship strategies can work in tandem with each other. So, you know, collaboration can also strengthen perhaps private dialogue that you've been having or speaking at an annual general meeting and attending another key right as a shareholder can embolden a board, uh, you know, that, that you may have also have been having private dialogue with, you know, perhaps embolden a board against a, you know, um, overbearing CEO for example so um, I think we're an interesting world of an expectation of kind of more nuanced ways in which we use stewardship strategies Um, and I do think transparency and analysis of voting and engagement that you know the the stewardship court here in the UK is really been seeking more impactful outcomes and and transparency around the activities of stewardship um, is is very encouraging um, as well. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned 13 resolutions had to do with kind of like diversity. And do you think, well, first question, do you think it's a lot or not enough? Uh, and secondly, what I've kind of noticed from our questionnaire as well for gender diversity was that some of them mentioned, yes, we joined that resolution, but it failed. So it seems like there is a decent number as well of resolutions that didn't come to pass. So what can we take away from this? Yeah, I mean, I think success for a shareholder resolution doesn't necessarily mean it passes. I mean, technically in a shareholder democracy, but actually a 40% support from a shareholder base on an issue that has been proposed through a shareholder resolution is actually a really strong signal to um, any board. And I think informed directors, board directors are really, you know, listening to some of the signals that are coming through through voting. Um, and also, I think some of the issues that are raised through shareholder proposals, um, asset managers may be raising them privately, but don't necessarily want to put them onto the public ballot. And so it's a way for them to demonstrate that they you know these are issues that, that chime with them and that they, they're, they're concerned about as well. Um, you know, I think the racial equity audits from last year um, were, were so innovative um, and, you know, gained a lot of support um, at the companies that they were that they were filed at. And I think shareholder proponents, you know, the, the, the shareholders that propose resolutions are much more sophisticated in how they, you know, word the resolutions and how they um, engage with the company before and afterwards so that, um, you know, that, that again, that the filing of the resolution is just, uh, you know, a, a part of the stewardship process. It's not all rosy. There's still lots to be done here. You know, these are systemic issues and there's this great idea of systemic stewardship that you re- you need really you know systemic stewardship strategies to address some of the key systemic issues we face in society like inequalities like mm-hmm. climate change um and you're seeing a lot more collaborations um i believe as i said earlier on these areas uh, so for any listeners of the podcast if you're interested in learning more about what this voting season is going to include in terms of shareholder proposals and other themes, um, then sign up to a free webinar that's being held by Proxy Preview on the 17th of March. um, And that's available at Mm proxypreview.org. And I'm wondering, because when you were thinking about gender diversity, for instance, okay, so what we can do quantitatively, we count how many women we have on board, and then we vote against boards that don't have that number, for example. 
But another interesting piece that is starting to come up a bit more in conversations is actually CEO compensation. And should we tie some diversity goals to CEO compensation? Should that be something that actually drives the whole conversation forward? Yeah. Um, so I'm beginning, you know, you're beginning to see uh, diversity targets um, within both annual bonus schemes for executives as well as longer term plans. Um, I think I prefer to see them in longer term plans because I think this is a long term investment and, um, you know, a solution to, to corporate cultures that that are, um, you know, have underrepresented groups. Um, I, I don't think it's without its problems because I think there is um, some reticence or worries from investors that, you know, if these targets are met, but the overall kind of financial performance of the company doesn't doesn't deserve, you know, a bonus or, or a long-term incentive plan vesting, then that becomes problematic. So I think, again, it relies on both the analysis and the rigour of investors to um, analyse and make sure the outcomes of pay plans are appropriate, but also it relies on really great board members on remuneration committees to oversee and make sure that the outcomes of pay plans are truly reflective of the entire performance um, of the organisation. But I do think, I mean, that old adage gets thrown around, what gets measured gets managed. So I think there is some benefits to integrating diversity and other ESG targets into pay plans. Um, however, I just think we've got to be careful how they're how they're applied. Yeah, Nisha. Yeah, and just on that point as well, I think um, we have to be aware that it can't be just a tick, you know, tick box exercise as well. Just to get your pay, you know, or your bonus. So I think, as you said, Deborah, it needs to be a long term strategic plan within the company before you know having that kind of target set in the short term. Because I don't think short term is giving anybody any kind of information that they are looking for. I think another interesting area within executive pay is malice and clawback. So where corporate culture has come to the fore, you know, where there's evidence of sexual harassment and, you know, a really malaise corporate culture, I think that should be included when we try and pull back some, you know, pay and bonuses from executives that have overseen that type of culture. So it's not just about integrating them, you know, forward looking. It's actually what's the consequence if Malay's corporate cultures cause, you know, diversity, you know, deficits and diversity controversies cause, um, you know, culture to be uh, damaged and, and ultimately that impacts reputational value and the long term value of the company. So I think it's it's both those areas that investors need to think about. Mm-hmm. Um- Corporate culture is something that keeps on coming up in conversations quite insistently. And to be to be honest, when we are talking about asset management space, the fact that we are looking at the gender diversity actually is dictated by this inquisitive thing of what are they doing to keep women? What are they doing to keep women interested, for example? Going back to gender diversity words, because they did happen in December, but it's not like this, this this issue is going away. I was wondering when you were looking as a judge at the entries, what were you looking to see and which kind of entries actually felt like captured that cultural kind of like shift, let's say? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And um, I'm conscious this was the second year of me being invited to be a judge on the Citywide Gender Diversity Award. So, so thank you for that as well. And um, what I was really interested in was I was conscious that, you know, each of the entries was in a specific category. But I was looking for the winners to really go above and beyond, I guess, the questionnaires and the questions that they that you know were asked of them. I was looking for a much more holistic approach internally, measurable targets, um, you know, networks, um, supporting, you know, all types of people within organizations. And a lot of the great entries talked about what they were doing for female employees, but widened it to, to other um, marginalised groups as well within organisations, but also that external perspective, the role of asset management firms as investors, as stewards of capital, because I think it has to be both. Um, you know, I think there is a real need for it to be joined up. And as much as, you know, I think so much progress is being made, so much more progress has to be made. And the beauty of the City Wire, the work that you both do, you know, the Alpha Female Report, as well as the City Wire Gender Diversity Awards, is that it's, you know, it's measuring progress. You know, the Alpha Female Report is the data doesn't lie, like there's nowhere to hide. And I was caught, caught by one of the comments from one of the previous podcasts with the other judges where Nisha was saying that some of the organisations that didn't win actually got in contact and said, you know, how come we didn't win? What can we do better? So, it sounds to me like the industry has embraced this, you know, as a way to kind of learn from the, the leaders, but also the, 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 the laggards want to kind of hopefully um, step up as well. And I think I think ranking is so important, right? It's just, it's important to see what good looks like within your own industry. And I think that's why the FTSE Women Leaders works as well, because you're, you know, it's FTSE 350 data, Data doesn't lie. You can't go anywhere. And so all of that, I think, is the power of data and how data is going to be so important for diversity progress, both for companies, but also for investors. Um, just wanted to touch on that as well with um, the availability of data. So we have worked in the gender diversity of asset management for quite a while. So And we have that data available to us to rank companies, to analyse companies in the way we do. Um, I know that you have been working on race equity in the last couple of years and your collaboration with the 100% Club with the Black British Business Awards, Diversio 30% Club in these areas. Now, with data in race equity, how do you think we are on that level now? Is it anywhere near where we should be as we are with gender diversity data? So, uh, I, you know, I'm a member of the 30% Club's race equity group as well that's recently been formed. Um, and I think data, again, is is transformational here but the power of investors as well is transformational so I think we have we still have some way to go and data can be problematic um, because some countries don't allow ethnicity data to be gathered so what I see with some investors is they're saying where data is available we will take voting action on boards that um, you know, don't have any racial or ethnic diversity. So I think that's the right approach because, you know, if data is problematic in, in certain areas, then you have to acknowledge that. But I think the more and more that transparency is driven through the system and driven through companies, I'm hopeful that some of the challenges around 
um, data can, can be overcome because I think it is so important for for companies, but I think and, and for investors as well. But I think going back to the racial equity audit resolutions last year, again, I just thought they were so innovative and just asking for independent verification of the experience, you know, of uh, black people within organisations, of people from different ethnicities, of people from different races, that it's an independent verification and that companies should want to know that. They should want to know that kind of independent perspective. So um, I think you'll see more and more of those types of um, investor tools that are really seeking to understand the lived experience of people within the companies that they're investing in. Mm-hmm. And when you were saying that some of the resolutions were innovative, um, what you mean is that they actually are asking for external assessment. Is that part of it or there is something else as well? So so this was the first time you'd seen resolutions specifically asking for racial equity audits and civil rights audits within organisations. Um, so... I think that's what makes that's what what I thought was innovative about them. Some of them were, you know, asking for independent law firms or independent consultancies to to kind of verify what was what co- uh, companies were saying they were doing in this space. Um, so I, I think that's what and the, and the level of support for what's called a first time resolution um, was was really encouraging. And actually, a couple of companies negotiated with the proponents and they came off the ballot so they didn't go to the vote because the companies agreed to do what the proponents asked them to do so I think all of that is just really encouraging and really important. When we are talking about diversity, obviously racial equity is important, gender is important, but we have some areas that are slightly trickier to track, and that is LGBTQ+, for example, or even elementary disabled workforce. I think these are all very difficult things, which very much depend on people coming out and talking about it, employees like going to firms and saying, yes, I want to disclose this information. And that's for a good reason, because history teaches us sometimes it can be quite frightening to be talking about this so in terms of this these data pieces how can we sort of navigate almost this very sensitive area yeah I mean I think it goes back to the point I made earlier about when I was looking at the gender diversity award entries I thought the organizations that really made the link about the experience of women um, and linking it to and these aren't discrete, right? Like I know these aren't discrete groups, but just a recognition that, you know, a really great approach to, to gender diversity, I think, will naturally lead to just more a more open and um a good approach to to the experience of other marginalized employees. The the challenges aren't the same, um, but I think there's just now um you know a rec- a recognition of the the employee experience and that if you want to retain employees and if you want to attract employees who are diverse, however we want to define that, then, you know, it matters how many women you've got on your board. It matters your disclosures. It matters about your policies and it matters about, you know, networks. I think networks are so important. And I would say this because I run my own, but, you know, that you know, sharing of experiences within organisations um, as well. Not everybody agrees that, that, you know, 
individual networks within organisations as the answer, but I think I'd rather have them than not have them because you should also be encouraged to take the time out to, 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 to go to those types of networks as well. I guess it's about creating those pathways and spaces where you can talk about it. And if you can't even measure the exact number of people who you have in your workforce, you can at least say, look, I don't know all the data, I don't have all the data, but here is this policy, here is this initiative. We are collaborating with external organization and network that will help inform us how to deal with that. Would that be something that can be done in the interim? Yeah, and I think it also is obvious how much you know risks companies end up crystallizing and bringing to the fore because they haven't looked at things from a different perspective and they haven't understand understood the you know the different employee experience i think the voice of employees the voice of all types of stakeholders on all types of issues including social justice is really you know so much louder now and you know it'd be quite a you know, a board with its head in the sand if it didn't understand that all of these issues, the employee experience, the stakeholder experience more generally, um, you know, are important and are impactful on long-term value. You know, you look, you see quite a lot of companies thinking about diversity across their supply chains as well. Uh, that's so powerful. Uh, so I'm kind of, I'm interested in how all of these things come together and um, we're at different stages in the evolution of some of these um, approaches and, and, and the solutions but you know it, I, I've never seen so much um, activity and, and efforts um, really trying to address this systemically across the investment chain and I guess in the whole ecosystem around companies. Mm-hmm. Um- this is a tricky question, obviously, and avoid reaching one as well. Uh, but what a good company culture looks like um, when it comes to diversity, for instance. Because obviously, you can go different ways towards that goal, but some fundamentals probably are pretty much similar. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a it's a great it's an interesting question. I I, I mean, I I'm getting slightly tired of you know this we've been talking about culture for quite a long time. Like everybody knows that diversity is, is more than diversity. It's about inclusion as well. And culture is about inclusion. But I think I've got more examples of corporate cultures that don't work than corporate cultures that do. So, um, and I think financial services, you know, has to think about the culture that it, you know, engenders within organisations we still have so much to do to try and break down some of the stereotypes and some of the, I guess, the the biases about what the city looks like and what financial services look like. And again, I think, you know, the, the Gender Diversity Awards are, are part of, you know, championing, spotlighting um, female talent. But it can't just be that. Like, it has to also be um, see by and tone from the top um, and, and just wanting to, to measure progress as well. But it's not just the quantitative aspects of data, it's the qualitative experience, like it's the qualitative aspects of corporate culture that I think is much more difficult to, you know, kind of identify. But unfortunately, when it goes wrong, you know, it's really really detrimental and impactful. 
Mm-hmm. I have to say one thing that did strike me today was um, looking at a post that you did, um, liked actually, De- Deborah, today, about a CEO dinner, a picture of a CEO dinner at a 2022 yes. Munich security conference of yes. all men, 30 CEOs around the table. Obviously, the person who put this picture up just thought, well, great, we're having this, you know, get together. But the yes. comments were no women, no black or Asian ethnic minority background people, no young people. And that just shows you that people are now talking about this even more. They are noticing, you know, yeah. why don't you have a more diverse CEO group, for example, on that. And I think that's where it's most powerful is like the comments are not, oh, have a great dinner, et cetera. Yeah. It was more, why aren't, why was in this group here? Why isn't this group here? You know, yeah, is it so homogenous and samey yeah. and not representative? Yeah, absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and so the, the risk of groupthink alone. Yeah. There's so much <laughs> evidence about what's gone wrong in history because mm-hmm. groupthink was kind of you know so systemic and teams and decision making of teams, you know, for by leaders. So I mean I think that I saw that photo yesterday, it was so stark, you know, we're you know, we, we are in a really um, worrying time in, in history at the moment. Um, and I just think if we want the best ideas and if we want everybody to feel like their voices will be heard and their experiences will be considered, then I don't think, you know, a group of the same gender and the same ethnicity is going to get us the best ideas and the best solutions to get us out of this. So, um, yeah, and it is amazing how much that stands out, but actually how long it took us to work out that, you know, homogeneity might not be the answer to to some of the deepest challenges in our our society. So, um, you know, it it amazes me that it took us to really 2010 in the UK to, to work out that there wasn't a lot of women on boards, for example, you know, I think the data from this from today's report is, you know, in 2010 and the FTSE 100, there was 12.5% female representation. We're now at nearly 40%, you know, so you know, again, data, measurable progress. Um, but we can't stop here. This has to be a continuum. Um, so, yeah, but I, I think I'll also um, tell you a good story because, um, I was rummaging in my purse the other day and I'm really old school. I still carry cash and coins. And I found this 50p that, and I just looked at it and it said diversity built Britain. And apparently it's um, coins that the Royal Mint issued at the end of 2020. So I'm a little bit um, late to the party just to basically celebrate and acknowledge um, how much diversity there is in our country um, for those of us living in Britain and how much it's been built on diverse perspectives and, and trying to celebrate the interconnectivity of communities and the value that diversity brings. So um, it really it really brought me some cheer. <laughs> um, unfortunately, it's not one of the collector's items that are of great value, uh, but it was just sometimes you, you think the universe is sending you a message and it just seemed that date was sending me one. So anyway, hopefully that, that negates the negativity around um, that, that specific photo that's doing the rounds on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And Deborah, I want to also use this uh, kind of like podcast as an opportunity to give a shout out to 100% Club and uh, the fact that it's been 10 years in the running. Um, it's 
far as I understood. Now, Ken, that's quite a nice time frame to look back at and see how far the conversation developed. So any thoughts about how things have changed in this period? Yeah, so um, the, te- the 100% Club turned 10 years old in October last year. Um, obviously, there's been no celebrations because um, we were, I think we were still in lockdown then. And I was hoping, hoping to do something in January, but the Omicron variant came along and I decided it wasn't a good idea. So I'm hoping to um, have a celebration later in the year. But I mean, the network has grown from about 35 you know, colleagues that I knew in the industry and it's now got a global membership of over 800 members, female members. And, you know, every day people email me and say, you know, I've heard about your network. I'd love to join you know, really across all ages, across all ethnicities. Um, and, you know, it's really multi-sector now as well. Um, and I just think, especially through the pandemic, I think people were looking for ways to, connect that was different to zoom calls um and and teams meetings my newsletters are are quarterly and i always get really positive feedback i uh, try and share inspirational stories and and data and research that i've read uh but i just think the power of networks and the importance of building social capital for any career development and personal advancement is just you know continues to be extremely important so i'm really looking forward to been able to organise a meeting in person and to continue to spotlight inspirational role models because I certainly still need them and and I think certainly hear from my members that they do too but they also just really appreciate the opportunity to meet in person and to you know go going back to meeting for coffee outside of the events as well if you meet somebody that that becomes a friend or a colleague um so yeah i just it, it's a continued continued wonder to me that i've made it to to 10 years um and i probably will still be here another 10 years as well <laughs> well that's great to hear Deborah. <laughs> yeah. i would very much hope so <laughs> thank you Deborah and nisha it's been a pleasure to have you today thank you thank you Margaret. thank you thank you thank you nisha <laughs>